Story Collective. Untold stories by unheard voices. Keystrokes Per Minute, a limited series podcast about the women of the New Zealand public service typing pools from 1945 till the present day. I remember with the manual typewriters typing so fast that all the arms with the letters would all get <laughs> tangled up because I was typing too fast. <laughs> really tiring. I, I think I read one somewhere that it was the equivalent of moving, you know, quite a few barrow loads mm. of coal every day. It was, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi my welcome to episode six, The Impact of Technology. In this episode, we delve into the evolution of typewriter technology, the introduction of computers, and what impact that had on our interviewees. They regale us with the excitement and difficulties of new technology being implemented, and how swiftly dictaphone recorders replace shorthand dictation. We are including shorthand as a type of technology, as this was a work tool that required training, practice and maintenance to keep up the speed and accuracy of the skill level. To help us understand the context of the technology timeline, I'm very happy to introduce you to our guest presenter, Dr. Rachel Patrick. Rachel is a local Wellington historian who utilised the Keystrokes oral interviews as the basis of her presentation, Voices from the Typing Pools, at the New Zealand Historical Association Conference in November 2021. Rachel explains here how she came to be involved in the Keystrokes project. Well, there were two reasons. One, the main one, is that I live in Paikakariki. Um, and the second one is probably the most important one, is that I learned to type, touch type at high school. So uh, what happened is while I was on maternity leave with my second daughter, um, I answered an ad on the local Facebook page um, by Judith Aitken, one of the project members, um, to do some transcription of some oral histories that they'd been doing. So I applied for that, sent them my CV, and then they realised I was also a historian as well as a touch typist. Um, so that sort of started my involvement in the project. Now Rachel will give us a brief summary of the evolution of typewriters and the other technologies used in the New Zealand public service. So initially, technological innovations in the area of typewriting simply served to make the typist work more efficient without dramatically transforming the nature of the work. The earliest interviewees for the Keystrokes Per Minute project worked on manual typewriters. I think the Imperial 66 was released in the 50s. It was pretty common in the 1960s, and updated models of it were still hanging around in New Zealand offices as late as the 1980s. So that one came in a nice teal or green kind of colour. It's quite attractive. Um, from the 1960s, electronic typewriters like the IBM Selectric, which was colloquially known as the golf ball because of the interchangeable type balls that it used. Golf balls were fairly ubiquitous in New Zealand offices in the 1970s. By the 1970s and 80s, the golf balls were being superseded by newer electronic typewriters with some inbuilt memory which is similar to the Canon typewriter, which is what I learned to type on when I was at high school in the 90s. Then you got these dedicated word processors like the Wang, which were common in New Zealand offices in the 1980s. So the innovation with them is that they have a small amount of memory and little text screens on them so that you can see any errors as you're typing and go back and correct them. 
rather than having to either start all over again or use little tipex things to erase mistakes. They end up being a little bit of a technologically um, a technological dead end, and they are quickly superseded with the arrival of personal computers from around the late 1980s. Um, of course, there were computers in New Zealand government offices um, earlier than that, so from a, the early 1960s, uh, but they tended to be the uh, fill-up hole rooms. They were the kind of ones that um, people with white coats would operate. Um, and so they're large mainframe computers and they're used for processing large amounts of data. Um, but they weren't something that was economical for everyone to have access to, and they weren't word processors. By the late 1970s, a lot of government agencies start introducing computerised database systems to centrally manage their information. Um, so the police have the Whanganui computer, um, Department of Social Welfare have their SWIFT database. And then finally, the arrival of more affordable personal computers from the late 1980s and then the internet from the 1990s revolutionises the nature of office work. For most of Mary Dooley's 43-year career, which started in 1950, she was in a supervisory or management position. Therefore, she has a unique perspective on how the technology changes affected the typing pool. In this clip, Mary also gives listeners some history about repetitive strain injury, or RSI. Were you seeing, by probably in the 70s, um, a change in um, equipment, like... We had, in the Labor Department, we had one golf ball typewriter that the senior typist had, and all the other typewriters were, except for two, I think, were, were manual. There was two electric ones. I think the senior shorthand typist and the secretary typist had one each. In the typing pool, the senior typist had a golf ball, and that was magic because... <laughs> Because you could do a correction without, you know, <laughs> without starting again. But the only problem was that just about everything we did had to be typed in five copies with onion skin copies and onion skin carbons, featherweight carbons, is what we call they were called. And if you made a mistake, you had to put pieces of paper in behind and change the, the back piece and all that sort of thing. So the different copies would be used for different things, like they'd be filing? Yeah, well, everything, just about everything that went to dealing with the immigration would would have to be copied to the diplomatic post and this and that and the other those places. That's how they would go. And that's why they would have um, the, all these copies and they'd have to be annotated. And the same thing used to apply to ministerial replies and things like that. Copy for the minister's file, copy for the department's file, copy for this, copy for that, all those sorts So was that stamped on the copy? No, it was typed on. It was all typed on? on. yes. Each copy? Yes. Yeah. It was, a, it was quite complex and not, nothing was simplified in those days. This is between 60 and 70. We were starting to hear about computers and uh, people got the, um, I think it was a Commodore or something like that, started out and then Wang came came along and, and they were all the go and I remember that they had a great big um, in, when computers first came in 
I don't want to be jumping the gun here. This was by the time I'd got to internal affairs. The, uh, they did a sort of a survey and we decided on the one we liked and got the one we didn't. <laughs> I remember that so well. I thought, what a waste of time that was. <laughs> did you work with computers before you retired? Oh, yes. Yes, yes I so did. So you would the thing was that I had a, a second trip overseas in 1986 for a month. Took my holidays, you know. I had a week left over from the year before, and I had a year, another month overseas. Uh, and the day before I left, they had a, a, a demonstration for the typists, at which I attended, of how to use uh, an Apple Mac page maker, desktop publishing. I can remember when I got back, I couldn't even remember how to turn the thing on. <laughs> I'd completely forgotten everything I learned that day. However, I soon quickly learned again what had to be done because I always considered it was important to know exactly what the other person had to do. And that was what I'd always maintained, that you, if you can't do the job yourself properly, you shouldn't be asking somebody else to do it. And so I made sure I knew how to do things. So after I left work, I, I did a lot of voluntary work for schools like, you know, the colleges and that, doing their school magazines, and I enjoyed it. And it was like, no responsibility, <laughs> just get on with it. <laughs> and what about RSI? Oh, yes, and that became really a big bugbear. It's a very real thing. In fact, I've probably suffered from it myself. I never, ever had any time off for it. But I remember people coming to work and I can recall one girl, she'd hardly been working three weeks when she went off with RSI. She was off with practically the rest of the year. Dreadful. Couldn't and that believe was at that. the beginning of the computers coming on, was it? Well, I don't think it was computers so much. as you got, you, People got RSI right from the word go, from typing all the time. Oh, so you think I think they did. Because often it was the some you didn't ever use that got it worst, you know. <laughs> I could never work that out. 99 times out of 100, that would be the hand and the thumb that would get the pay. When Lorraine worked in the curriculum division typing pool, she really put the golf ball typewriter through its paces. And when the Ministry of Education needed a typist who understood te reo Māori, they had to think outside the box to find someone who had the necessary typing and language skills. And that's where I, I got a golf ball typewriter. And it was horrendous because... I had to do German and Spanish and Maori a little bit of, and they have those little dotty things above certain letters. And the golf ball typewriter, you had to change the golf ball typewriter every time you came to one of those little marks. My record was changing it 17 times in one line. I got blisters on my finger. So you'd type Fred, and then you had to put a little something above the E. So you'd take off the golf ball, you'd take put on the golf ball that had the little thing, you'd type it in above the E, then you'd peel it off, put it back, put your original one back on there. Um, and then later on when I got my uh, uh, one of the in-charge's jobs at education, they wanted a Maori typist mm -hmm. who had TCB exams in Maori but who could type. They got a male and he had his TCB exams. He was perfect. But rare, very, very rare. Very rare. Yeah. The girls didn't want him. They came to me en masse. <laughs> we don't want him. Well, we talk about it tea time. He, he can't join in. Oh, no, we, no, 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 no. And um, they loved him. I, they absolutely adored him when he came. 
Working in the public service from 1975 to 2020, Minna has experienced all the major and minor technological shifts, from using manual typewriters to the first word processors, from telex to email, and from gestetner to photocopier. In this clip, Minna tells Eth about using the Wang and CPT word processors, which were competitors in the early era of desktop computing. CPT was an acronym for Cassette Processing Typewriter, as its first model was a dual cassette tape machine that controlled a modified IBM Selectric typewriter, so a hybrid of two technologies. The CP models used in government were of a generation that used the same floppy disk operating system as the Wang. So I was only in a typing call up to police, all of um, birthdays and marriages up to police, and then I, then I moved on to Defence and other places, and from there, Department of Māori Affairs. Um, the only time I went to the um, typing pool was because by then we were using Wang, and I looked after the Chief Judge of the Māori Court, and he was also um, the um, Chief Judge of the Waitangi Tribunal, Chief Judge Eddie Dury. I looked after him. So, and when he was doing a case, it was all put on to, you know, um, on the wing. So I'd have to go down to the typing pool and type up all his handwriting. So in births, deaths and marriages, you had manual typewriters? Yes, we had Olivia, Olympias, is it Imperials and the Olivetti. Um, yeah. Remington? Rem yes, well, yes, we struck the Remington, yeah, when I went to Polytech, because we had a variety of um, typewriters mm -hmm. to, to practice on. And then you went on to police. What did you have in the way of technology there? Um, it was a typewriter. And we used to have to do carbon copies. How many? And, um, oh, well, just maybe one or two. So you mentioned also that um, you then moved on to Wangs, weren't you? Yes. Well, we went to work in um, defence. Oh, so when we were at Polytech, we were always told, if someone ever says to you, you know, what sort of typewriter would you ever like, you always say, we would like an IBM Selectric. <laughs> so, you know, you don't IBM Selectric. So I worked left police, they ended up working for defence, and I had an IBM Selectric, um, which was just wonderful. Very different type to a typewriter. But um, it was really funny because um, I would, the machine drove me nuts. It would throw dashes and things like that. And so we got a technician in or something, and um, I said, I don't know what the story is. And he said, just type. And he said, the reason it's throwing dashes is you're typing too fast. But um, so we had this little, um, at, at Department of Māori Affairs, this, this, this funny little screen that green words would come up, and you could see if you'd made a mistake and you could go back and correct it before you printed it out. So that when I ended up going over to DSIR, we had something called CPT. Mm -hmm. So it was a word processor. So um, and I must have got trained for that because we were all on CPTs. Um, so there was this word processing thing, which was so big and made a racket that it had to have its own little sound shell, <laughs> honestly. And there would be some of them had paper, you know, coming out. And that was the other thing we also learned because um, uh, other in other jobs, you know, the um, telex. And the other thing, of course, we had to visit the Gestetna because you'd, we'd do onion skin. They called them onion skin, some of them. And mine would be slathered with this pink... Red paint. Yes. Red. Like that red, pinky red, whatever it is. Yep. Valerie had spent five years in a typing pool during the 1950s and re-entered the workforce in 1976, 
where she found that some of the technology shifts were not easy to adjust to. So how did you find the transition from the manual to the electric? I don't think I minded that transition. I did find some of the others later on very, very difficult. Yes. And I don't think I ever really got on top of it. I think possibly due to my age, but I think possibly the people who came in to teach us later assumed we knew a lot and we didn't. Um, like my age group didn't really know a lot, whereas the young typists did because they had run into word processes and th things at school. I found it very hard later on. Maureen's career of 47 years started in 1959. In this clip, she starts off by telling Eth about the best typewriter in the world. Then, as an earlier adopter of computers, Maureen was instrumental in training other staff to get up to speed. And were you primarily working on a manual typewriter? Started off with on a manual typewriter. It was absolutely amazing when we went on to electric typewriters and, and we got golf ball typewriters. IBM Selectric. The best typewriter in the world. Yep. I love that typewriter. And then we became computerised. Um, and then from there, that led to someone that needed to train them, train the staff how to use computers. So the boss sent me on a course, and then he sent me on another couple of courses to do, I did two teaching diplomas, so that I had something behind me to teach as well. Linda's typing pool experience began in the mid-1960s, and she remembers the excitement around the office when a new bit of technology was introduced at the Ministry of Works. And equipment that you used, so what were the typewriters you used in that? Because that was quite a long period. Yes, years. it was. It was quite yes, a long time. Yes. I'm thinking that we started off with the, the old metal, you know, those sort mm -hmm. of upright mm -hmm. ones, but then we got those flash new plastic, what would they be? Um, Olympia? Could have been. They were, rather than the sort of squat square high ones, yep. they were the long sleeker ones. And but they were still manual? They're still manual, absolutely, yes. I never, we never got to electric um, typewriters when I was there. I do remember the excitement next door in accounts when they got the first digital calculator and we all, it was huge, it was about, you know, a foot square. And we all, you know, gazed in amazement at this tool, which meant that they, the blokes didn't have to yes. do that. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's yeah, anymore. Um, I remember that was amazing, but no. But even the, these new typewriters, they, they were so much easier to use. Yes, so that was a real, you know, we were quite excited about those. Jan went straight from a manual typewriter to an electronic one, which had a small screen that allowed typists to enter several words and then give the opportunity to correct any errors before committing it to the paper. Initially reluctant to learn how to use a computer, some sage advice changed Jan's mind. I'm going back a bit. Prior to going to 
with the university. Mm. I had started electronic typewriters. Had right, good. Remembering what you said before. I never used an electric typewriter. I went straight from the manual to the the electronic with its wee screen. Oh, loved it. Loved it. Absolutely adored it. And then I got to Waikato, and about 18 months later, suddenly it was we were going to be wired for sound, it felt like, and these computers, yes, well. And I, don't ask me what the program was. I can't remember. But it was pre-Max. Um, um, Pre-Max. Right. Yes. Possibly, it, possibly word perfect, but there was something before that as well. There was well. this gold key that you used to press and get other other things, programs and things. I can't remember, but I know I took oh yes. And I didn't want to learn computers, thank you very much. And and dear Wolf, it was the Vice Chancellor was Wolf Malcolm, who'd come from Victoria, professor of pure maths. <laughs> and um he said and he had a, an experience of his own to say, if you don't learn, you will find yourself going backwards, so to speak. So I went to give it up my loins and pulled up my socks and did it. Sadie was in a head typist role for the finance and accounts division at the GPO when they trialled a customised piece of technology that eventually evolved into an electronic typewriter. Like many others, she also has distinct and not fond memories of one piece of office equipment. What about technology? What about the changes? I mean, you, you had that special occasion when you were on the golf ball. Right. And I, I well remember being on a golf ball. And you've mentioned the data entry room. You were right at the crossroads of those yes, massive right. changes that yeah, were coming. Okay, so um, in Finance and Accounts Division, I was given a machine to trial because we did a lot of legal work, well, just legal forms, really, and it was really for people who didn't pay their telephone bills. But um, it was like an electric piano, you know, and it stood on four legs and it had the keyboard here, but it only had sort of like a couple of lines running along there. That then evolved into the typewriters, that electronic typewriters, but we actually used this um, computer thing, we called it, you know, and... The girls got trained up on it, which was really good because it was just a slow progress into the life of electronic mm. and computerised typewriters. Um, the next was that um, the electronic typewriter with the line that ran along yep. there, which was excellent. Was that a cannon? Yes. Yeah. I was actually um, on the government store sport there for a little while. But it was cannons, yeah, they were a big big player. Yeah, they held four pages and, and you could run the line along. Yes, that's yes. right. It's amazing how many letters were five pages when you have a four-page memory. <laughs> <laughs> and and when you say that you got trained up on it, how did they do that training? Oh, actually, um, the marketers, the people who sold it to <clears throat> us, just ran a, a session through, really. You know, it wasn't marvellous. The rest up for you to lose. Yes, through books. But after after I'd been in finance accounts for a while, I was then placed in the engineer-in-chief's office here, which was a huge typing pool in the, in the post office building. I, I was just acting up while a person was on maternity leave there. And that's when we got wang and, and so we got 
two wings. And, you know, this is the new way of life. That brings back that horrible blimmin' thing we had to use a gestetner. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I remember that was done on full scar. It was. You know. The wax paper. Yes. And the red yeah, to, ink, yeah. ink to cover up the mistakes so you That's could retype right. the letter. It just sort of like um, drew a film over it, really, didn't it? Yeah, winding the handle. <laughs> oh, I know, it was such a messy job. It was, it was. And then I remember photocopiers coming in and I thought, you know, that's 10 cents a page for every page you photocopy. It's 10 cents. And I used to think, so? You know, how much is my time standing at that horrible gestetna? In this clip, Pamela explains what long carriage typewriters were needed for, how the allocation of new technology didn't always go to the typist who needed it most, and how production improved once electric typewriters came into service. Pamela then goes on to explain some of the nuances of shorthand dictation and why you should never chew a biscuit while using a dictaphone. Those, those big carriages yes. were um, for accounting. Okay. So that you know well, the, those will be in the budget office. Yes, so you know the spreadsheets that we have these days. Yes. Well, in back in the day with mm. the Gestetna, yes. you would the longest you would have would be a full scat. Yes. Yeah. So you had to have a carriage that you could fit that yes, in. The full scap into the full okay. scap gestetna, so there was full scap sure. plus the edgings on it. Yes. To yeah. hold. Yeah. So you would have the big machines. Mm. They would, would have been in the accounting departments all the probably the reality, largely. The times yes. that I came across them, those were accounting. Yes, but not in mm. not in the day to day. It was normally the the normal the standard mm. typewriter. And physically, what difference, Pam, did it make to your work that you had access to an electric typewriter? Speed. Okay. Speed was the big thing, and if you had um, a large report to get out, speed was the main thing. I mean, it could be 25 words per minute. Yes, yes, that's a big difference. Which is a big difference. It's a very big difference. And if you've got to get... And those over a day, that's a lot of time. You know, it's a lot... Yes. It's a big report. It can be hard. So presumably, the managers or the people <coughs> who've written the reports, their expectations of being able to get it back more quickly changed yes. as well. Yes, there was this thing. If I can remember when I left Auckland to go to Wellington, the... Head typists were the ones who had, or the senior people, had the electric typewriters. Mm -hmm. And I can remember thinking at the time, that's not right, because they were more supervisory. Mm -hmm. They were not they weren't doing the daily. physically doing the The deputy mm -hmm. was putting out a pile of work. Mm -hmm. But so it should really be going to the people mm -hmm. who are putting through a lot of work. You know, of just, so I suppose when I went to Gilby's, I had knowledge of a keyboard typing and piano, I had the piano which had taught me to listen, the oral thing of sounds, which is very important in shorthand. Ah. Tell me, just amplify that, because nobody right. else has said that. Well, in shorthand, all the vowels, A-E-I-O-E, all have a position or a sound, a symbol for them. Yeah. So if I say... Every consonant has a shape. So my name's Pamela. Pat. So it's a P and an N. And where 
it's positioned on the, the lines is where the vowel is. So it's a, it's a short vowel, so it's up, pep. If you put it down into the middle, it would be pain. So the speaker who's dictating the shorthand to you, that voice is obviously really important as well. Very, so, very much so, because if you've got someone who speaks clearly, doesn't matter if they've got an accent, as long as they enunciate clearly, it makes it very simple. Mm. Um, but if they rumble, mm. or hell's bells, if they chew a biscuit, <laughs> I suppose it is worse when you're doing dictaphone and someone chews into a ginger nut. Believe you me, I've had that happen. Oral spectacular. <laughs> In these next two short clips, Catherine explains to Judith the difference between Pittman's shorthand and T-line, and then Friday tells Judith about what motivated him to get creative with his shorthand style. But when, yep. in the, back in the typing pool, I was doing a lot of dictaphone typing. Oh, were you? And I oh. liked that in my training I'd done right. really well with that. Yeah. So... Did you have shorthand? Yes, and shorthand. I had T-line and Pittman, and um, still use it. Someone asked me last, literally last night, what the difference was between T-Line and Pittman, and I said, I'm going to ask somebody tomorrow, what was the not difference, much. what is, not much. Pittman's was first, mm -hmm. and T-Line came later, and I preferred T-Line. It was just almost like shorthand of shorthand. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's to do with the, the language you learn. It's great. If you, I couldn't do Pittman's now, I can only do T-Line, because I haven't kept it up. Mm. And it's... It's fine. If, if, if so Pittman's would be like a language that has a, a symbol for every word, but the yes. T-line is a, is, a, is a phrase or something, is yes. it? Yes. Yeah, Okay. Much. Yes. Um, and they've both got the whole alphabet, but Pittman's uses a lot more language around words. Yes. And what was your shorthand speed like? Um, it was good back then. Yes. It was good, but then because it was, I... Realise that in terms of the letters which they were dictating, mm. they're basically the same readings mm. all the mm. time. So I kind of made up my own. Your own shorthand. My own shorthand. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which now it's almost like having a template, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yes. Which now I think was a bad mistake. Yeah. <laughs> because I still use it. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, no one else can read it. But that's the point, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so I... So not only did you have standard shorthand, you had your own other language I, as well as that. I, I had my other language. So I learnt... Um, oh, I learnt T-line. Oh, did you? I, I was going to ask at, you about that. I think at high school. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, oh. and yet, when I started with social welfare, I was the only one that actually did T-line. I'm sure. Yeah, so like yes. everyone else did Pittman's, 2000 yes, Pittman's. Yes. Uh, the I wonder why at school you've done T line instead of Pitman's. Oh, I'm not quite sure. The teacher must have had some preference. For yeah, them, yes. yeah. Because there's quite a significant difference. Isn't oh, there really is. Really, they are, they yeah. are like a different mm. dialect. Absolutely. Despite a rocky start, Nikki learned to love dictaphone typing. In this clip, she explains where she got the best training and support to learn new skills. This was unusual. Most of the interviewees will talk about how they were expected to find their own solution for learning on the job. But another thing that I was called upon was I did dictaphone. When I was first taught dictaphone, I didn't like it. And then I thought, if I'm going to get anywhere, 
I have to learn it. So I learned it. And then the industries, the Commerce Commission, they asked me to go in there and start typing up dictaphones and to have spent three times, three months with them because it was part of training industry. So I went there to work for three months just dictaphone typing and I loved it. But I can honestly say my best training ever was in the Ministry of Transport. That was another real one. Because they were out there, they were more advanced because Ministry of Transport had more advanced computers than trade and industry. The Ministry of Transport, that was only like two years, a few years difference, that when I walked in there, they had computers. And my sister said, come here, we've got computers. You're still on the golf balls. And I went, yes. So when I went there, well, I just moved quickly through the ranks. It was amazing. And in those days when they inducted you and they monitored your um, your training and, and your development, they recorded every three months to catch up on how well you're done. And you know, had carbon paper and the green, you had carbon paper to say, you need to develop a bit more on this. So you take that on board and you do something about it. So hopefully by the next three months, you would have achieved that. When Sally C was introduced to dictaphone technology, she was shown how to use the tape playback once and then expected to learn as she went. Later, she explains the joy of moving from mono to stereo and how important proofreading is for ensuring quality. Um, and we all, all did dictaphone typing. So how did, are you self-taught on the dictaphone? Yeah, yeah, it was just, here's so, the dictaphone. Um, you know, you put the tape in there and you've got foot controls and you plug your ears in and away you go. Right, so it was completely self-taught. Oh, yeah. There's no um, formal training in those days. You so just picked it up. Did they, um, the men, I assumed, used the, the dictaphones? They used little then... portable dictaphones and then gave us the tapes. Right. Yeah. So at that stage there was no, no. PCs or... No, no. no. And the other thing too is that... Um, you know, like years later, working in the hospital, we went from mono to stereo, and that just changed life so much. It was so much better. Because in those days, you know, like everybody speaks differently, and there's, um, speak, people speak clearly, or, you know, they mumble, or they spit into the microphone, you know, things like that. And they've got, people have got different accents, and, you know. Right. So did they... I'm just curious, so they'd be dictating, so would they say full stop, new paragraph, or did you have to do all Some that people did, and others didn't. So, you know, like there was a lot of, that's where I actually learnt the worth of proofreading right. letters. And you could tell, I reckon you can tell a good typist from a not so good one by the proofreading that they do. A lot of people just bang stuff out and then off it goes and they don't even spell check. And the interesting thing in those days, we used to use carbon copies Wonderful. Oh, and um, twink. So some of our letters <laughs> went out. It was like, is this a retype or how much twink do we use, you know? Right. And then, yeah. Um, so twink had come in by the 70s, obviously. Yeah. We didn't yeah. have twink in the 60s. Oh, no. No, no so it all had to be pretty accurate. Yeah. Linda H. also had to just learn on the job when faced with new technology, and she even still remembers today some of the keyboard commands for the DOS operating system of the Wang word processor. 
what technology were yeah. you using there? So if we go back, when I was at the typing pool, we had IBM golf balls and then we had the Canon typewriters where you could save a memory or a paragraph. And then when I went to air accidents, I think I had a typewriter. I think I went back to an IBM. And then uh, they had a very, very old computer upstairs that was for data entry for um, recording the details of the aircraft accidents. And they had a telex machine, very old, clunky thing. And then they had a had Wang web processor, which I so I had a typewriter and a web processor. The Wang web processor was interesting. So did you get training for that? No. No. So what did they do? Put it put you in front of it. <laughs> Say off you go. I mean, someone must have showed me how to turn it on and, and do stuff in it, but it was just learn on the job. Did you learn have on a, the job. A manual or a can't remember. I must have done. I suppose. I mean, Ron uh, Ron was pretty up on how to use it, but we just used to have laughs sometimes because, you know, you had to put a code to start bold and a code to end bold, and you know, you print something out on the on the line paper, you know, with the holes at the sides, and it just spit out, and he goes, "Oh, look, it's all in bold and italics." <laughs> so, yeah. When Sally L left the typing pool to start a family in the mid nineteen eighties. There were still typewriters on desks and word processors were big clunky machines with noisy printers attached. When re-entering the workforce around the year 2000, she knew she had to upskill herself as so much had changed. So in that period of time before you stopped to have your family, you had the transfer from manual to... We had, they were big clunky machines too, I can remember. Yeah. Were um, they wangs or... I mean, the whole range of them that were out there. I couldn't remember. I couldn't no. tell you what it was. But I do remember that we'd type on this thing and then it would print out on this great huge printer that was in a, a soundproof box. Yeah. But it gave you that first working on a screen, yes. being able to correct before you printed. Yes, yes that's true. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. That, that, was, that was a change. Yeah, it was a change. And just before I left, they bought in PCs. And so I... Um, I think I, I did a little bit on them, but not a lot. Right. Um, so yes, I left, and then of course, technology just took off. So, a few years later, you had to face it again. I did. What did you do? Because yes, I I was scared too. Yeah. So I I know what you're talking yeah. about. What I, did you I do? I went to, to night classes. Right. I went to night classes to learn how to type or how how to work a. a a, um, a PC um, and then came oh, I, I still knew people at the council which was great and I happened to ring one one day and I, because I knew she was still here and I just said oh looking at wanting to get back into the workforce I've just done it this night class and I just wondered if there was any opportunity she said sure I'd love to have you back so um, yeah thankfully thanks to her she got me in and I worked part-time for about 12 months, but I had the school holidays off. And then, um, of course, the job got too busy and they needed someone full-time, but I wasn't at that stage in a position to do that. So that's why I left again. <laughs> Come and go. Yeah. Go. So when you did the night school, is that when you learned Word or yes. Word Perfect? or uh, that was Word. Word, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Word. And that would have been... Actually, no, it was 2000. 
Starting work in 1978 at the Department of Statistics, Yvonne could see changes starting to happen, and she was curious about the data management system that was housed in a room of its own. Her natural curiosity continued as she adapted to all the rapid changes in modern office equipment during the 1990s. By the time Microsoft Windows' operating system was the mainstay for government departments, training was being provided regularly. Um, so how long were you in the typing for? So probably, yeah, probably would have been only about 18 months. And I think, because I think that's the changes started happening there. So, but I do remember being there, like, so remember next door, I don't know why they showed me, but next door was the big data processing centre where they had the big computers. Yeah. And so, because you could hear this whirling sound. And so me, I think, being nosy, just said to the guy who was going into that door, I was going, what's in there? And he said, I'll, come, I'll show you. Because I think it must have had DMS on the door, so data management systems. And it was huge, these big, huge machines, computers. You know, see, these are the ones that process all the data from the census and, and we just put stuff into them and they print it out on little cards or just also, yeah, and it was just like, wow. He said, and this is a big computer. And I think probably now, probably no bigger than my laptop, could do the same thing that that whole big room I gathered did. actually it's no bigger than our phone. Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> which was just, but that was like amazing. And you could just see technology was just moving forward in leaps and bounds. And then, so I ended up being, I think, like over the, like 10 years in Australia um, and just moving forward, studying, um, got homesick and then came back to New Zealand and worked for what was then the employment service. Mm -hmm. And so, and then it was like, yep, there's a computer on your desk and it's yours and you use it and you do everything yourself. But old DOS systems and blue screens and all weird things and they just got bigger and better and smaller they used to be big huge things on your desk took up half your desk so when you came back here was that about 1990 um 91 probably about 91 I came back and then we just like new systems would come in and so all of a sudden things got looking more like you know your little boxes to fill out you didn't have to tab and you have to use funny codes to move to different pages like type I remember like, like D29 to get to this page or D2 to get to that page. You didn't have to do commands. Yeah, we had we did have trainers at work and income that would come in and would take had like who knew probably like word and that thing. So I think for you to move and learn more, they did have workshops that you could go to like for a day or half a day. Mm -hmm. So yep. I think eventually that came in, they just realised they had all this technology, people weren't using it till its full advantage. Mm. You know, they'd do a basic letter, but it was hideous, it looked ugly, no one knew how to format anything, and so I think they very quickly got trainers in, and employed trainers, and had training, like we had a suite, um, probably of about six to eight computers, where they would then teach people how to use the, the work and income system, and then you if you didn't know how to use Word or Excel or, or emails, you could go in from, and they'd book you into other classes. But I think most of us, we just learnt it as we, as we did, as we went. Yvonne reflects on how technology changed over her working life and how the younger generations see the typewriter today. Yeah, it's just fascinating when you look back now, the, the change and how quickly, you know, it was years we had that same typewriter. 
you know, at school it was the same and it was a manual typewriter and then all of a sudden, you know, that we would have like two electric typewriters that you could use at the um, at the Polytech. And then you got into your job and you had the, the golf ball and then different ones came in and the ribbons that you could just slot in, you didn't have to feed them through and, oh my goodness, it was just amazing. And that, you know, that technology even with just within typewriters changed so quickly. And then computers came and then they just, they just got smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think I remember being on holidays with um, my friend's um, cousin's children and we went to a, like a park and it had old houses in it and it had a typewriter and it had a plug-in switchboard and the girl went, who would have used that? And I went, I did. I did my first job, my first couple of jobs, I used that. And I used that typewriter, and I'm horrified at sitting here nearly in a museum because I did that. It was in my, you know, in my lifetime. I've, you know, they had all these different typewriters, and I said, I've used that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. And, and she said, How? <laughs> it's just what you did. Now we hear from a representative from the other side of the typing pool. Someone whose job depended on the services of the typists. Pat O'Sullivan had a 30-year career with New Zealand Police, rising through the ranks to become Detective Senior Sergeant with the CIB before leaving the service in 2001. Pat starts off this clip talking about the pros and cons of the transition to handheld dictaphones. So dictaphone, can you talk about the difference between the um, shorthand to dictaphone, that kind of change? Yep, that... I guess that probably would have been in the 80s as well, where we got the personal, well, when I say personal, they were small. They, you didn't have one each. Mm-hmm. Um, dictaphones where you could sit at your desk or even sit in the car and um, uh, and dictate. And, and that was quite a almost a revolution, I suppose, because it, it just made that whole process so more mobile and, and, and so more 24-hour. Um, because the typists obviously didn't have to be there to, to so you could um, you could dictate pretty much a whole file. Some people were a lot better at it than others. I personally I didn't like dictaphones that much. I I like to see things on paper. I like to see what I've said and think about that in terms of where I'm going next. Whereas once you've spoken it, it's gone. And so I was never that keen on the dictaphones. That, Principally, I guess, because I just wasn't all that competent with them. Whereas some people were brilliant, you know, could just flow away. Mm-hmm. And, and so the dictaphones weren't that big a revolution for me. What what they were really useful for and it didn't have a, a lot to do with the typists was, say, at the scene of a crime, for example, if you were the OC scene doing examination, being able to walk around, talk your observations into a machine and then come back and listen to them later and type them out or have someone else type them out. That was a great thing uh, with dictaphones. Mainframe computers, those large room-sized computation machines, were introduced into New Zealand in the 60s. The first was an IBM 1620 installed at the University of Canterbury in 1963, and then the Bank of New Zealand purchased the country's first commercial computer in 1966. By 1976, the State Services Commission set up a database called the National Law Enforcement System, better known as the Wanganui Computer. It held information which could be accessed by New Zealand Police, Land Transport Safety Authority and the Justice Department, and it was eventually closed in 2005. 
In this clip, Pat O'Sullivan tells Rachel about how information was submitted to the Wanganui computer in the early days and whose job it was to ensure it was done correctly. Computers, yeah, the police were one of the first. The, the, you know, you'll remember the Wanganui computer. That, that was the, the massive mainframe. That was mm-hmm. really the first, I think, the first government department that, that moved into a big centralised mainframe system like that. Um, and... From fairly early on, we pretty much all had access to that, but it wasn't typing as such. It was it wasn't a word processor. It was just a database. If, if I remember rightly, in the early days, at least we couldn't input, right. but we could, all we could do was inquire. Right. Um, Put in a search term yes, for a name or a name, or vehicle or registration numbers, etc. Yes, sort of and then sit there and wait so for who the was response. Put, who, where was the input there were, from? There were specific people who did that. Um, but not a typing pool per se. No, no. And they were getting the information from from like we would take notes of of whatever of um, people's names, what we call turnovers, which were we stop someone in the street and get their details and that sort of thing. That was all input by specific clerks that did that work because they knew the system and so they were non-police, so non-sworn. Mostly, I think they were from memory. Yeah. Mm. clerical people yep. who used your notebooks to yes, input they'd, it? Yes, they'd use the notebooks or you'd dictate it to them or, or And did you whatever. have to do this every so and often were, or did you do it every shift? Uh, you'd pretty much them? do it every shift, but there were forms you had to fill in as well, which you'd do longhand. You right. didn't have to type Oh, those, I see. So you possibly filled in a form which then went yeah. to somebody went who, to someone inputted who inputted it. it. And mm. then someone up and down the country could yes, then look into exactly. it. Which, of course, has right. all changed now. Anyone can input and so on. And that's why the police for many years have had an entire section called vetting and validation, um, which is supposedly charged with correcting all the rubbish that's piled into the systems by careless and unqualified people. (laughs) Rosemary also had a 30-year career with the New Zealand Police Service, starting out in a typing pool in 1976 taking a break to work in parliamentary services and for telecom before returning as a relief shorthand typist in Nelson in 1991. Rosemary tells Judith about doing both shorthand and dictaphone typing before word processes changed everything for the better. Yes, I did a lot of dictaphone work at the police, but also shorthand and typing. And that typing pool was very small. There was only three of us. Yes. It was quite different to the 20 or the 40 that, you the 40 that I started with. Yes. Yeah. Um, the others were a wee bit older than me, so they might have come through a different yes. route mm. to, to the job. But they were basically professional typists. Oh, professional typists and shorthand. And shorthand. All had shorthand. Mm. Yeah. And I think it was in police that computers were first was it? introduced. Okay. No, sorry, that was back in the telecom word processors. Word processors introduced then. In telecom, yeah. With those dot matrix printers that used to make such a racket. They did. Mm. So that was quite life changing, actually, word processing. Tell me about it. Yeah, that was um, just, you know, fantastic being able to type. And if you made a mistake, backspace and just carry on. It was. Did you yeah. have training or were you expected to think about it? We did have training, mm-hmm. actually. Um, Wang was the mm-hmm. first system I used. Yeah. Went to Wellington for a whole week mm-hmm. oh, to learn how to use that. That was, that was from telecom. telecom back in those days. Mm-hmm. 
It was quite exciting. It was. It was yeah. really exciting, actually. Yes. I loved it. Yes. Just all this new technology that right. was coming in. So by the, by the time you, then you went back to um, the police, yes, and you were working, believe, and was that computers? Was that Yes, that was computers, computers. back at police. Okay. At police, that was computers. Um, dictaphone work, a lot of dictaphone work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you still use shorthand as well? Still use shorthand as well. At the time of her interview in 2019, Rosemary was an executive PA to a district commander, and here she catches Judith up on the latest technology. Police now don't do their own typing, I have to say. It goes into the Winscribe system, so our typists pick all that up. So um, police can use their telephone, their cell phones or landline to dictate something, Mm -hmm. and it goes into an electronic system called Winscribe. So um, our W-I-N-S-C-R-I-B-E. Okay, Winscribe. Yeah. And so our... Is that across the whole police? Yep, across the whole police. Our police staff um, just transcribe it from Winscribe daily. So, but before that, we used to have police sitting down at at computers, banging out their own letters, banging out their summaries of facts or whatever it is. And also that's public image still. The image of police doing their two-handed typing, and that's the report of that ever... Nobody else has raised the windscreen system. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. When was that introduced? That would have been probably five or six years ago. Okay. So about 2014 or something like that. Yep. Roughly 2014. I look at that, that's very oh, that's, oh, that, that must have had a huge effect on quality. Oh, a huge effect on quality. Yes. And the beauty of it is, like if a police is out at a scene yeah. or something on the road, yeah. they can just of go course. to their windscribe app. Yes. Um, Type, dictate what they're seeing straight away, and it yes. goes into the system, and then the typist can type it beautifully. So, how many typists are the other end typing about? So are they still in pools? No, no, we've got different work groups. It's called our file management centre. Okay. So we've got three type. Well, actually, so we've got three dedicated typists, but anybody in the file management group can pick up any of that one squad. Okay. So the dedicated typists are the ones that do the transcription of the DVDs and other um, specialised typing. But the others pick up the Winscribe. And I do the Winscribe as well. Oh, do you? Right, okay. So that presumably the other end of the process is like when the material, say, goes to court or something like that, that must be much better guarantee of quality. Oh, yeah. Spelling, grammar. That's very interesting. So the the typist will, you know... Mm. Make it make sense, really. Yes. Whatever they're yes. transcribing. We close out this episode by spotlighting a unique interviewee, Louise, who started her career in the mid-1970s as a data processor for the GPO. Louise was part of a team known as Automatic Data Processing, or ADP, and her job consisted of punching cards to upload data to a mainframe computer. Moving on from the GPO, Louise took the recommendation from a friend to join the Broadcasting Computer Centre, as they had computers over here. The Broadcasting Computer Centre required specialised, purpose-built systems, some of which were developed locally. And by today's standards, Louise and her colleagues would be considered entry-level programmers. There was jobs going over at Broadcasting. 
you know, broadcasting computer centre. So I applied for a job over there. We went, I went and worked over there. What year was that? That was 19, end of 1974. We went on to a new system we learned, they brought in, it was called Inforex, and that was a great system. In fact, that would be the best system I worked on, I reckon. Tell me about it. Um, well, it was, you could program it to do things your way, mm-hmm. so you could change it, and you just, it all came on, I think it was like a tape type thing. I can't remember exactly now, yeah. but it was, you keyed all your stuff. Like we and your mach- what was your machine like? What was it a machine? It was a keyboard like a, it was like a, it was like a typewriter like type right, machine. They're always, yeah, always that sort of keyboard. Like that, yeah. Crowd that made them for X. It wasn't Burroughs. It was an outfit out in the hut, and they designed this data entry system. It was the next thing after the cards, and it was fantastic because mm. you, each person could program it to do their things. Like if you wanted to, if you did a job and you had all these duplications, mm-hmm. you could program it to copy the previous one so you didn't have to key it. And it was all that sort of thing. And everyone could, everyone on every different machine could program their machine accordingly. And we did like all the, all the TV advertising. Yeah. So we keyed all the TV advertising every day. That had to be done before lunch every day. And then that was run through in the computer room. And then if there was any errors, they came back and they got done. I'm saying that they were always... Um, we were all, everything was verified. Everything was verified. And we used to, at broadcasting, we used to do the election results. We worked on keying oh, the election results. Yes. And that was quite an interesting little mm. little job. At first, yes. we did, the first time we did them, first few times we did them in the office, and we'd get the results and key them all in, and they'd go into the computer centre, etc., and run them through and whatever. And then we worked out at, out at TVNZ, out at Avalon, mm-hmm. and the studios mm-hmm. out there, we'd key them all in there. We did that quite a bit. Mm. So they would go straight from the computer to the screen. Mm. And just to prove that a typist's love of the typewriter never dies, we let Carolyn have the last words of this episode about the impact of technology. Did you ever work on an IBM golf ball? No, but I have one here. <laughs> I own one. Oh my goodness. Because my husband had bought them and loved them so much when they were throwing them out, decided he'd keep one. And I still have one. I still have all the pots of golf balls that came with it. Whilst typewriters have spent decades sitting dusty on backroom shelves or sent to the scrapyard, there has been a recent resurgence of interest amongst a new generation. For listeners interested in finding out more, I highly recommend watching the 2017 documentary California Typewriter, which, by the way, features the Boston Typewriter Orchestra, who kindly permitted us to use their music for the closing credits. And for those of you with a more activist leaning, search for the Typewriter Insurgency Revolution Manifesto. In the next episode, The Public Service and Women's Work, we hear about what it was like to work for the New Zealand Public Service, how the standards, bureaucracy and culture shaped the working lives of many typists, and then take a broader view of women's work through the eras. The Keystrokes Per Minute project was made possible by funding support from the Ministry of Culture and Heritage and the Public Services Commission. Listeners can find out more about the project by visiting website www.storycollective.nz. The soundtrack was kindly provided by permission from the Boston Typewriter Orchestra. Find their music and merchandise on bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.